Welcome to A Gamer's Story. I'm Noah Geekus, avid fan of gaming and gamers alike. Each episode will feature in-depth conversations with gamers from all areas of gaming. Have you ever wondered about the actual gamers themselves? Their motivations? Their home lives? Their quirks? Just how much time they actually spend gaming? And their thoughts on the future of gaming itself? Join me as I ask them just these questions. Are you ready? I'm very excited to welcome our special guest for today's episode of A Gamer's Story, Eric Willis. Eric is a video game designer and producer. Have you ever thought about how a video game goes from idea to creation, or who collaborates with the team of artists and creators of the game, all while staying in budget? That's Eric. Eric currently works as an associate producer at Funcom, which specializes in creating online multiplayer games. There, Eric is one of the people ultimately responsible for the timely delivery and final quality of those games, all while juggling the needs of the clients and artists. Eric, thank you for being on my show. My podcast is about all things gaming, so I'm so excited to talk to you about what it means to be a game producer and designer. Are you ready? I am. Let's do it. All right. Great. So, Eric, for everyone out there who doesn't know what a game producer or designer is, is there a difference? Yes, very much so. So game producers are responsible for sort of the organization and management of the teams and and making sure that everyone knows what to work on when. Most producers, myself included, don't actually get involved in sort of the engine and developing or designing things uh, hands-on. So we, we leave that to the professionals, right? So the designers and the coders and the artists are the ones that will actually build out the game. Our job as a producer is more project management. So um, I work with you know the creative director, the game director, and, and the senior management at the studio to make sure their vision of the game is made and communicated to the rest of the developers and that we do things you know on time and on budget. And that's really my function. So uh, is it hard like keeping to the original budget or do you or have you ever gone off the budget? Yes, absolutely. Every I would argue uh, every project I've ever worked on and I imagine most games have have had to change their timeline either because of budget changes or wanting to add new features to the game or or an issue with personnel. Things always take longer and cost more money than we expect. Even even when we, you know, sort of factor that in, right? Even if we're aware that, okay, these estimates are going to be wrong, so let's pad them out. Let's let's build some buffer in there. You're still wrong. And it, it always just seems to take more time and more money than you expect. Yeah. So uh, if there was an original budget on a project, uh, let's say, uh, let's just say it's like $120,000. I don't know if that's big or low, but and let's just say you go over that by $30,000. Would the people who are like who created the game, the creators, would they be like mad at you? Would they be angry or would they just understand it's a part of the process, you know? It depends on the situation. Some, and it depends on on the team and the studio you're at. If you're at a small, you know, indie studio, just a couple friends wanting to make a game, you may not have $30,000 to go over the budget with. So that's just not even an option. You just have to figure out how to make things work with the money you have. If you're at a big AAA studio that has, you know, millions, even billions of dollars in the bank, then going over can be understandable. But it has to be, you have to justify it, right? You can't just say, hey, we need more money. You have to go to them and say, we need more money, and here's what more money buys you, right? It buys you these additional features. It buys you these, you know, more art assets. It buys you more uh, interesting gameplay. You know, it here's what you get for giving us more money whenever you go over and budget. Um, so it really depends on the situation you're in as far as as going over budget yeah absolutely Uh, i'm just wondering have you ever gone under budget like have you ever finished the game and gotten everything you wanted done and just had money to spare no (laughs) i have not to be fair i've i've only worked on on so many games so i can't speak for every project that's been worked on of course um so maybe but it's that's not been my experience Mm -hmm. because 
what happens as you start getting into development is you start seeing where the game can be fun and interesting. And then you start having more ideas, right? You say, okay, this is really cool. What if we did this new thing that builds on top of it? And that's called feature creep um, or scope creep, where things start slowly kind of creeping and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's kind of what ends up pushing out your timelines and your budget is you see the potential in the game and then you want more because you see more potential. Like, oh, but if we did this, if we had another couple months, if we had, you know, so much more money, we could make it even better. And and that process just never sort of stops, right? It's, it's someone you, there comes a point where you just have to, to shift the game, even if it could be better. You just have to kick it out the door. Yeah, I've heard that one before. If you didn't know, I play a lot of card games. I play Magic and Yu-Gi-Oh! Mm-hmm. And I'm actually going to go play that after we're done here. But um, so there's this thing called power creep, where effectively as it goes on, like the power increases slowly but surely. And Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic are, are big benefactors of this. More so Yu-Gi-Oh! than Magic. But slowly, as the power just creeps up, old cards can't be used as well. And um, and some people don't like the game as it is now because of that power creep. I don't mind it. I think it's kind of what I came into. Eric, how do you start managing a team of artists to get everything done on time and on budget? So, so it all starts with um, it all starts with the creative director or the game director, whoever is the vision holder of the game. Right? There's typically someone who who owns the overall vision of the game, and then working with them and the art director, we start off by sort of concept. Right? We start in the concept art phase, and usually we begin by trying to find the artistic style. Right? How do we want the game to look? So you think about a game like Call of Duty looks very different from Fortnite, looks very different from TF2, looks very different from Left 4 Dead 2, and they're all, you know, shooters, yep. right? They're all shooter games, but they all have a very distinct and very different style. Yeah. So, you know, if I were to take a character from Fortnite and drop it into Call of Duty, you would know, yeah. right? It would look very out of place and vice versa. So finding that style and how you want the game to look is sort of where things start. And that begins with the art director and and the concept artist. Once we have that established, then we can start moving the concepts over to our 3D modelers who will then, you know, take these 2D images and bring them to life and bring them into 3D assets that can be put in a game. And the 3D modelers, you know, these are guys that that do everything from environments to characters and so like humans and then monsters, as well as uh, what's called hard surface modeling. So they're working on vehicles and weapons, anything that has a hard surface uh, versus organic material like, you know, skin and flesh or or trees and and bushes and that type of thing. And and so what we do is we create uh, over time, we create what's called an art pipeline and the pipeline is is not like a physical thing it's not there's not like an actual pipe it's just a a order through which work has to go through from inception to in the game and so an example of of an art pipeline would be concept 3d materials and texturing and and um, the shader then if it needs to be animated it would go to rigging and then animation and then finally it would get in the engine. So once that pipeline, once that order is established, then as far as organizing it, it typically goes, you know, we want, we, we work with the creative director and the art director to know what's our priority. What are we focusing on right now? Are we focusing on the environment? Are we focusing on characters? What, you know, what's our focus? When they'll say, okay, we need three characters. We need five set pieces for the environment and we need two weapons. Okay, great. Go back to the artists, you know, concept artists. How long is it going to take you to concept something? Great. Modelers, how long is it going to take you to model it? You know, texture and, and textures and materials, how long is that going to take? Rigging and animating, how long is that going to take? And then once I have those estimates, I can I can plot this out in something called a Gantt chart that visualizes how long each thing is going to take and shows the dependencies on it, right? The modelers can't start until the concept artists are finished. So then I can take that and track that, and I can compare that those estimates against the reality, right? So if an artist tells me this will take me three days, but it ends up taking them four days, okay, I need to adjust 
the, the timeline for things like that. And that sort of prioritization and time tracking and estimation is really the bulk of what I do as a producer and communicating that back and forth. Right. So I so the, the senior management needs to know how long things are going to take. The developers need to know how long they have and then sort of negotiating that uh, the, any differences between those two is, is really a large part of what I do. OK. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Have you ever like so when somebody tells you something, have they ever been like wildly off? Like, let's just say someone says three days and they actually take like a week. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. It happens very frequently. And it usually happens, it happens more often than not with coders, where they'll be given a task and on the surface, it looks very simple. You know, this will just take me a little bit of time. But as they dig into it, they realize that the systems that were put in place don't work for what they now need to do. And so they have to do a refactor or they have to find some other way of accomplishing the task. And so suddenly this thing that was going to take a couple of days takes two weeks. And that happens, that happens, right? And that's part of the reason that, that things go, go over budget and go over time that we talked about in the beginning. There's just a, there's a lot of unknowns. And when you, when you actually start getting your hands dirty and you, you dig into things, it's, you know, sometimes you're just wrong. Sometimes it, it just, you know, you think this is going to be a quick and easy task and it's not, it's, it's a huge deal. And that happens a lot, especially in um, the beginning phases of a project when you don't have as much information. And, and you know, they, I see that happen most frequently with coders. It does happen with artists and designers as well. But the artists um, and designers, that will typically happen more at the beginning of the project. Mm-hmm. And coders, it can happen at any point in the project, really. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, anyway, I'm going to go off the rails a little bit here. What's your favorite sure. Team Fortress 2 character? I used to, I actually used to play Team Fortress 2 competitively, and I played competitive pyro. I wasn't, you know, very good, but I did play competitively in the Highlander uh, series. Wow, I'm, I'm glad I asked days. that question. Th- that is not scripted, by the way. <laughs> uh, no, no, there was, uh, uh, I mean, you know, this was back seven years ago. Uh, so when I was younger and, and, I don't even know if there is a, t- a competitive TF2 scene anymore, mm-hmm. but it was fun at the time for sure. Yeah, uh, I like the spy. Spy's name? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. He, he's my favorite. I'm I'm not the best at the game, but I still like it. I still have fun. It is fun. <laughs> it's a fun. It's a fun, well-made game. Absolutely. So, in your life, like in your day-to-day life, what's an average day like? Sure. So during the during work days, my mornings. Uh, so we start work at 9 a.m. Uh, my mornings from about 9 to 12, maybe 9 to 1 p.m. Um, is all meetings. We are, the project we're working on is being uh, worked on by several studios in different countries. We have a lot of studios over in Europe um, where they're, you know, five, six, seven hours ahead of us. So, so that time in, in our morning is sort of the overlap. Of the of the work hours, and so that's our opportunity to actually communicate with each other. So my mornings are almost always meetings because if it we're not communicating this morning, I have to wait a day to get an answer to a question. So so I spend a lot of mornings in meetings. In the afternoons, I spend a lot of time catching up with team members, seeing how they're doing, making sure nothing's blocking them, making sure they have what they need, following up on tasks. You know, are we on track? Is is it going to slip? Are we ahead of schedule? How are things going? Uh, later in the afternoon, we do a play test. We play test our game every day. And so we do that uh, around three o'clock. We do, like I said, we do a daily play test with, the, with our entire team, um, which is about nine people right now. And, and then the rest of the afternoon is spent basically either catching up on creating new tasks that came out of the play test or continuing to follow up on, on tasks from earlier in the day. What's the earliest time that you've woken up for like a meeting like that? For me personally, I, I've been very fortunate. So I would say probably 8 a.m. is probably the earliest I've ever had to wake up. Other people definitely have had meetings that, you know, two in the morning, three in the morning. Oh, my gosh. Um, my, my boss is, is overseeing the publishing of a game from a studio that is out of Australia. And so there's a 12-hour difference. 
And so meeting with them is always, you know, sometimes he has to wake up at two in the morning, three in the morning to, to meet with them. So, wow. Oh my gosh. Absolutely does happen. Uh, I've just been very fortunate that, that I haven't had to do too much of that yet. So, so how often do you like play test a game in the afternoon? And like, what was your favorite game to play test? Like what was the most fun? Sure. So um, for me, the most fun game that uh, to play test was probably actually the first one that I worked on professionally, which was Disney Infinity Three. Mm-hmm. I heard about that. Disney Infinity Three and the Disney Infinity series was just a lot of fun. It was just a fun platformer. It was exciting as well because Disney Infinity Three featured a lot of um, Star Wars material, including um, stuff from The Force Awakens, and so mm-hmm. we actually had we actually got to see some of the stuff that was going to be coming out in theaters before it was released. Oh wow! Um, so so that was really cool, and and just getting to like you know we learned some of the characters and we got to see some of the the stuff um, before it was was released in theaters, and that was that was kind of fun. And, and the game itself was just fun. It was fun jumping around and swinging a lightsaber and, and watching things, you know, explode and turn into uh, the little Disney Infinity gems and currency. And yeah, that one that one was a lot of fun. But I will say that, that playtesting is, one, it's extremely important. And two, it should be, it's not always fun, especially at the beginning of a project, because it takes a while for something, for a game to take shape. And so sometimes you're in there playtesting and there's like, it's just, there's just nothing to do because the game isn't far enough along yet, but that doesn't make the playtesting any less valuable. So it's, whether it's fun or not, playtesting is extremely important. Mm, yeah. I've, I've played Disney Infinity before. I don't know if it was 3.0, but I, I do vivid, vividly remember uh, me playing the Spider-Man level. Yeah, and it was, it was just a lot of fun. Like, there was Mysterio and Venom and all these cool characters. And, and I had a lot of fun with Disney Infinity as a kid. But, yeah, I, it's, it's crazy that you've worked on that because I feel like you could have made it part of my childhood. But that, that's awesome. It was is definitely uh, is definitely a lot of fun working on Disney Infinity Three. Yeah. So, uh, how did you get into this career of being a game producer? Yeah, so it's kind of a long story. The short version is uh, I went, I did my undergrad, and I went to the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where I got a degree in mathematics and computer science. And while I was there, I decided that I wanted to be a gameplay programmer. I wanted to work on, on, I wanted to work in games, I wanted to work on gameplay, and I wanted specifically to work on AI. And getting into the games industry and getting into that type of position can be really difficult. And so one of the so the avenue that I decided to pursue was going to the University of Utah's Entertainment Arts and Engineering Master's Program, which is basically a master's program in, in video game development. And I joined, um, I got into the program, and I joined as a programmer. But during my time at Utah, I discovered that I enjoyed sort of production work more. And it came very naturally to me. Even though I was a programmer, there were people that would come to me with production type questions that I would I would help them out with. And and it, I just sort of kind of fell into this role that admittedly no one else really wanted to do because it's not the most glamorous. But I I really enjoyed it and it seemed to come very naturally to me. So while I was in the program, I made the switch from being a, a computer engineer to being a producer. And uh, by the time I graduated, I graduated the program as a producer. And then since then, I have, I have worked several jobs uh, in different roles, but production has always been the thing that has kept me coming back. And, and it's, it's what I've done most recently. I'm, I've been a producer now at Funcom for about three years coming up on my three-year anniversary with them. And, and it's what I want to do long-term, right? I'm, I'm looking to grow my career as a producer and, and eventually, you know, go as, as high up in a studio as I can. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, you came, you came wanting one thing and you got, you got here. I mean, I, I'm sure it worked out better for you though, but th- that's awesome. That's just amazing. So anyway, in this career, uh, I don't 100% know what kind of education you would need. So, so why don't you inform us about that? Sure. So the short answer is you don't 
you don't really need one because the most important thing about working in the games industry or, or getting a job in the games industry is what games you've worked on. It's not about what school you've been to. It's not about, you know, what degrees you have. It's what games have you worked on? What games have you published and shipped? And you can, right now, with all of the tools and tutorials and everything that's available online, anyone can make a game by themselves completely for free. You can put it on a web, you can host it on a website, you can put it on Steam. You can, you can make your own website and host it and get it out there. And anyone can do that. And if you do that, if you show that you are capable of completing a game, even if it's simple, right? Even if it's something like, you know, Flappy Bird or, or something like, you know, of that caliber, it still says a lot about someone who can take a game from nothing to actually getting it out the door because it is very difficult. The amount of things that you don't think about when you go into making a game and, and how to get it all to work and get it to a point where you're happy with other people seeing it is tremendous. But that is that is the most important thing, right? If So if someone, let's say someone was trying to get into the industry, they wanted to be a designer, they wanted to be you know an artist or a, a programmer. And on one hand, I had a candidate that had you know a master's degree and, and all this other stuff very highly qualified. But on the other hand, I have this person who never graduated from college, but has put out their own games and I can play them, right? That's the person that I'm going to want because I know that they are committed and passionate about making games. One of the big things that I tell a lot of people that are interested in getting into the games industry is that it's one thing to be passionate about gaming and games in general. It's another thing to be passionate about making games which is a very different beast. I, I like to use the analogy of cars, right? There's a lot of people out there that like to drive fast cars and like to watch races and everything. And that's great. You can love it and be super passionate about it. But it is a very different thing to try and make one of those cars than it is to, to drive one or, or to like them. And so, and the same is true for game development, right? Being passionate about games can help, but... It's a very different skill set and a very different sort of mentality that goes into into making a game. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I mean, if somebody has gone to college and, and finished college and they've also made like games like that, I'm sure that would be the one to pick, right? Like the one who's also awesome games. Of course, yeah. And it's easier, it's going to be easier for programmers. It's always going to be easier for programmers to get a job in the games industry than, than the other major professions because we need more of them. Designers are going to be one of the hardest because everyone wants to be a designer, but so there's just a lot of competition. But again, if you, and there's not, there's not like a college degree on just design, right? On just being a designer, um, at least not that I've seen. There might be nowadays. So it's going, so being a designer is going to be, getting a job as a designer, especially an entry-level designer, is going to be very difficult. Being an artist is going to be a little different in that I'm less concerned about an artist who has made games before. But for artists, everything that, for, that they need for their application is their portfolio, right? How good is the last piece of art you made? Are you, as a concept artist, as a modeler, as an animator, whatever, show me the best thing you've ever made. Show, you know, show me the two or three best things you've ever made. And that will tell me if you if you, you know, have what it takes to, to be an artist in the games industry, at least as an entry point, right? So that would be sort of the, the inroads from the outside to try and be in one of the three major disciplines, designer, programmer, artist. A lot of people get into the industry through QA. Um, and being a QA tester, it is a being a QA tester is probably the easiest job to get if you're just a general QA tester, because games, especially as they're getting closer to shipping, just kind of need bodies. And it's it is not a fun job. You hear stories about people that are like, OK, we need you to open this open and close this door a thousand times or we need you to go through this entire city and open every door and make sure everyone opens. And and we need that. Right. Like that's an important part of testing. Uh, but it sucks. Like It's not fun. But going through QA is one of the ways that a lot of people get into the industry, because once you're in the company and you know people and you start to network, 
you start to show what you can do and what you know, then it becomes easier to sort of transition out. So a lot of people join through QA and then don't stay in QA for very long, which is a shame because QA is, as you go deeper into being a QA tester, there is a lot of, there's a lot of skill and a lot of nuance to it. And a good QA tester is just worth their weight in gold. But as happens all too frequently, the good, the good testers leave and they go on to be a programmer or an artist or designer or something else, um, which is a shame. <laughs> yeah, it makes anyway, sense. That was kind of rambling, so I apologize. Oh, that's that. fine. It's fine. I like it better when the guest talks. I get a little break. I'm just joking. But yeah, I mean, like when you're opening each and every door in the city, it gets kind of boring. But I'm sure for the people who test the game at its full, I mean, I think that that would be a a great experience. I mean, I think that the people that you're talking about might not have the best side side of the stick, like best end of the stick. But um, I think that in the end, I think that if you're going somewhere through that process, then maybe it's a good thing. It depends. Uh, it depends on who you are. And and it it definitely shows if you're really passionate about actually making games going through QA. Because like I said, it sucks. Spending 8, 10, 12 hours a day playing the same game, playing the same level over and over and over again is hard. It's just hard and it's boring. God, it's so boring. But it's necessary. And, and you know, people that are really serious about working in games, they they love it. And they'll maybe not love it, but they'll go through it because they want to move on and do other things. Or they might have a love for QA and want to stick it out. But there is a high turnover rate in QA. There's a lot of people that are like, I'm really passionate about games and I will do anything to work in games. And they do it for about two weeks and then they quit. They, they see the reality of it and they're like, nope, we're done. Yeah, well, too bad for them because some people probably made it to producer if they wanted to. It's not uncommon for producers to come up through QA. So on a later note, what's your favorite game that you've put work into? Probably, probably Disney Infinity 3. Actually, that one was really cool. And I got to I got to work on a lot of cool things. I got to meet a lot of cool people. When I finished working on it, they when it actually shipped, they gave every person in the studio every single Disney Infinity figurine and and all of it. Right. It's like a five hundred dollar bag of toys, basically. Um, And that was super cool. I still have all, all the figures and that was that was really exciting. Every every game that I've worked on has has been enjoyable. There's been something about it. I think the most important part of working in games and, and the thing that I enjoy most though is actually the people. You get to work with some really incredible people that are very hardworking and that are so good at what they do that it's it's just it's exciting and it can be rewarding just to get to work with them, um, regardless of what you're doing. Right. Whether it's, you know, you're doing a hardcore shooter or you're doing like a golf game or you're doing like a My Little Pony game. Like it, it what you're working on becomes less important the more time you spend in the industry and, and the people that you get to work with become the biggest part of it. Yeah, that's a lot of the reason why I play Magic. I go to a comic book store um, on the weekend and it's just so much fun to be with those kinds of people. And just to keep exactly. just to talk to them, like a lot of my friends are those kind of people, and I, I just it's just a it's just a great experience to to like people who who know what who know what you like to play and like talk about, you know. So oh yeah, and also the the big box of Disney Infinity stuff. As a kid, you do not know how excited I would have gotten. Like the toys like genre was like my thing. I've literally been revisiting Skylanders. And I cannot uh-huh. tell you how much, like, me as a kid would have just, like, looked at that box and went crazy. I would have went wild. How, how long has it been since you revisited Disney Infinity 3.0? Um, actually, about since I worked on it. I have all the things. I've just never, I've never broken them out. <laughs> I haven't decided quite what I want to do with them. I need to get, like, some type of display case. Because I have different things, you know, like that from different stages of my career that I'd like to be able to set up and show off in some way. And I just, I just haven't done it. So, yeah, I haven't revisited Disney 3.0 in quite some time. That's kind of a, a bittersweet story for me because it was a great project and it was such an honor to get to work on it and work with those people. But 
that was um, that was my first ever professional job in the industry. I ended up getting laid off, uh, which is common in the games industry, is, is people to lose their job. And then less than a year after I got laid off, the entire studio closed down. And so that was three or 400 people uh, that lost their jobs. So that was not great. Uh, so it's, it's very bittersweet, right? I'm, I'm so happy that I had that time to be a part of it. But it's, it's one of the, the negative aspects of working in the industry is studios close, people get laid off, and it sucks. It's awful. But that's, it's a volatile industry. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really unfortunate that people can get laid off that easily. But um, I hope you at least enjoyed your time there because I think that that kind of experience, especially for your first professional job, would be very cool and, for, and like very, it would be very exciting, definitely to me least it was it was a great experience and it it uh yeah very fortunate to have gotten to be a part of that yeah so let's move on so i mean i know i just said this but like do you play the games you work on as in like after the fact other than like disney infinity itself like have you (laughs) is there a project that you tend to still play nowadays like um if you had a project that you made a while back and you still play now is there a project like that there is one uh so i play a lot of smite by high res and i worked for high res for a little while when i was with them i focused primarily on their sort of overwatch style game paladins oh yeah i've heard but of I that did get the- i actually played it yeah it's it's you know free overwatch it's fine and while i was there i spent most of my time focused on paladins but i did get to work on smite a little bit here and there, and I still play Smite regularly. Um, I was a huge Smite fan before I worked at High Res, and then I'm I'm still a huge Smite fan even after I've left High Res. So so that's probably the one big one. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the games that I've worked on have either stopped running, like Disney Infinity Three. They they you know they shut down the servers. You can't play online anymore. You can still play single player and, and all that, but you can't like join other people anymore. Um, and I've worked on some mobile games that have had uh, a similar fate where they were really successful for a long time. And then, you know, it ran out and so they shut them down. And, and I've also worked on a lot of projects that have been canceled. Um, so I've put, I've put a lot of time and energy and stuff that just doesn't make it out the door, which is another sort of negative or, or unfortunate aspect of working in the industry. You can spend, you know, a lot of your, a lot of time and a lot of your life working on something that just never sees the light of day. So, so the answer is, is not really, but a lot of that is kind of more due to circumstance than, uh, than a desire to not play them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely unfortunate that that something shut down. But then again, some things like evolved. If you if you remember No Man's Sky, if you've ever heard of that game, where it was like completely horrible when it first started out, and then and then when the updates came, people started going back to it. But yeah, I mean, I've played Paladin before, by the way. So you probably worked on a game that I've played at least because because mm-hmm. I, I I had a lot of fun with that game. I do have Overwatch, but I actually I actually like Paladins as well, yeah. Okay, this is an interesting question. Do you think that VR games will eventually replace console games? I think given enough time, yes. I do not foresee that in the next 15 years, 20 years or so. The problem, there's a couple problems. One, I think consoles as a whole will eventually die out um, because there comes a point with the consoles and the upgraded hardware and all that where it's just a computer and there's no more. A console right now is a computer that you can't upgrade. And the reason people play on them is because one, they're cheaper than computers and two, they have exclusive games, right? So, they, so especially PlayStation had, PlayStation 4 had a lot of exclusive games that you couldn't play elsewhere. But I think that as computers and technology become more affordable and as exclusives become more less exclusive and more generic, we'll actually just see consoles go away. I think everything will just be run through a personal computer. This is my own opinion, but that's kind of what I foresee. And as far as VR goes, the problem with VR 
And what we saw some VR, like the Virtual Boy, back in the day, and then you know, sort of the past five, past ten years or so, maybe eight years, we've seen kind of a resurgence with the Oculus Rift, mm-hmm. and then um, it was kind of the big one, and everybody loved it. And then you know, there's PlayStation VR, there's all these other things. The problem with VR, though, is that it is a reminder of what it's not. Because VR is a fantasy. It's trying to fulfill the fantasy of you are in the game, right? You are holding the gun, shooting the bad guys, you're swinging the sword, casting the spells. And that's the fantasy that that VR is really trying to fulfill. But it doesn't, right? It gives you some of it. It lets you look around and it lets you sort of feel immersive. But if I swing my sword, I want to feel it hit something. And it doesn't. I'm just swinging it air. Or if someone hits me... I want some kind of feedback that I've been hit. Um, obviously, I don't want to actually be shot or stabbed or anything, but I want you know, I want some type of, of feedback. And and the technology just isn't there yet. And we we also can't you know they've made some strides here, but we still can't really comfortably move around, right? And even the solutions for some of these problems that are out there, and even a lot of the VR solutions, require an entire room. Like, it's, it's not practical, right? It's not something that everyone, the mass market, can afford and, and set up and just have a room in their house dedicated to all of this. When you compare it to, you know, console gaming that's still fun just sitting on the couch or PC gaming, everybody has a computer, right? So I think when VR gets to the point where it actually fulfills the fantasy that it's trying to of, of like, you're in the game of being like that matrix style, you know, fully immersive break from reality, then yeah, I think it's going to be an incredible, incredible piece of technology. But the, but right now, no, I don't think so. I absolutely agree with you. And also between all of that, I think that also sometimes the graphics just don't match up. You're not really looking at a realistic world, what they, mm-hmm. what they offer to you. It's like, we can make you seem like you're in a world, but you're never going to actually feel like you're in a world. Because it's not immersive. It, I mean, it is immersive. Don't get me wrong, but it's not—it's not perfect representation of what the world looks like or like what it feels like. And even on some of these console games, like the graphics are higher because like they look better, and and you can tell like that in VR, it's going to take a little while, a little more effort, and a little a little better uh, graphics and stuff to to get there. But also, yeah, the point you made about the rooms is completely correct. I've seen people bust down their walls like with the, with like they punch through their walls with with their little stick or or something like that, and it, and it's like. You can't subject a whole room to just doing this. And even then, sometimes that might not be enough. You don't know where you actually are. And the thing you said about, like, how you want some feedback or how you want to know, I think that's also exactly right. It's like, it's more like you're still playing your video game. You're just, your character is just you now. It's, it, it doesn't change anything. Because, I mean, it, it looks like you're going to get hit, you're getting hit, or it looks like someone else is getting hit, and they may, like, die in the game, but if there's nothing to feel, if there's nothing to hit, if there's no, no actual representation of what in the game you're trying to do, then there's no feeling of realistic, like, what you're actually doing. You're not feeling like you're actually hitting someone, you're feeling like you're moving your arm to hit someone, but you're not hitting anything. It doesn't mean anything. But, yeah, that's just my opinion. I mean, I, I think that if in... As you said, like 10, 15 years, maybe a little bit longer than that. I think that VR games will evolve to be be good because of graphics and because of maybe like more realistic technology. But um, for now, I don't think that it's going to beat out consoles. No, yeah. no, I don't think so. So how has your career affected your personal life? Do your family understand your job? That's an interesting question. So... It certainly has affected my personal life in a couple different ways. One, uh, like I've like I mentioned earlier, it is a very volatile industry, um, and I have I've been laid off more than once. And you know, I've I've been out of grad school. I've been working in the industry um, for about six years now, and in that time, I have lived in three different states. So so it's a lot of you know you you have to move around. And, and that is not always 
you know, super conducive, especially if you want to have a family and have children and, and set up roots. It's, you know, people do it uh, for sure, but it's, it's harder. It's harder when you're moving around like that or, or when you work in such a volatile industry and, and you might just have, you might lose your job and you might have to move somewhere else or a better opportunity comes around and you have to move. Uh, so it certainly affected my life in that way. And I would say that's, I would say that's probably the biggest part of it is, is just moving around. And there's always some degree of uncertainty, no matter how confident you are in the company and the project, there's always the, the biggest companies in the world still lay people off and they still close down. So no one is ever truly safe. And what was, I'm sorry, what was your second oh, question? It was just, does your family understand your job and career? Yes, kind of. They were, they were much more supportive when I was an engineer. And now that I am a producer, they're still, they're still supportive, right? They don't, they certainly don't think less of me or less of, of my career choice, but I don't know that they really know much about what I do or, or, you know, kind of as, as working in games. They just don't know a lot about games. So, you know, they understand that I'm a project manager. Project managers exist wherever there's projects. But as far as like the actual game side of things go and the specific challenges to working in the games industry, they just don't really have much of a concept of it. But they've always been supportive. They've always, you know, said, like, it's your life. Whether we agree with it or understand it, it doesn't, it's not really the big factor. It's, it's your choice. And so um, I've been very fortunate in that way. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel like almost exactly the same. Like my mom and dad, they, they know I play Magic and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon and all this stuff, but they have no understanding of it. When Well, I've tried. I've tried my best, but my mom, uh, she she's tried, but we kind, we kind of fell out of that. And then my dad, he just doesn't want to understand it. He's just like, just do do what you do and leave me out of this, right? Like my dad, my dad, he under, he understands how much I I like Yu Gi Oh, and but he hasn't tried to learn. The second he comes into a conversation about Yu Gi Oh, he's completely flabbergasted. He just has no idea what we're talking about. I have friends at like uh, this place called the Bearded Dragon. I go to two places, and the Bearded Dragon has this kids league. So this kid's dad plays magic too, but when but my dad doesn't know how to play magic, and they're friends. But my dad just has no idea how to play magic. So if it, they're talking, they're talking about something else. So they're talking about like us, me and me and Aiden, who's his son. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just it's just really funny to try to talk about magic to my dad, or you give to my dad, and I'm sitting in the car spouting about absolute like nothingness to him. He cannot. It, it goes yeah. through one year and comes out the next. <laughs> it's like, uh, but. I just I just think it's funny how like how I, I do this so much and I'm a kid and I'm and he's an adult and I'm like and just he has no understanding at all of what I'm doing. I'm like, dude, but you're an adult and he's like, Yeah, but I don't understand it. It's funny. But I think that anyone can learn magic. I think that with enough practice and patience and anyone can learn anything, really. Yeah, totally. I agree. Yeah. But uh we're coming to our final questions here. So where do you think the gaming industry is headed? Just wondering. That's a really interesting question. I suspect that the gaming industry is going to be heading towards more of a subscription-based model um, that we see with the Xbox Game Pass and PS4, uh, the PS Plus, where you will you'll no longer buy games. You'll just buy a monthly subscription service. You'll pay for that, kind of like Netflix, and then here are the games you can play. I think that we'll see more and more use of uh, free and premium currencies, sort of the Fortnite business model. I think we're going to see a rise in that. The rate that game, the rate at which the cost of game development has increased versus the cost of buying a game uh, is not sustainable. So, so 15 years ago, you could buy a brand new game maybe 10 years ago, you could buy a brand new game and it would cost you $60. Well, today you buy a brand new game and it costs you $60. But 10 years ago, that game might have cost $10 million to make. And today it would cost $100 million. So it's not sustainable, right? We're, we're reaching the point, the games industry is, is starting to reach the point of kind of hitting the market cap, right? There's only so many people that can buy your game. There's only so many people. So you have to find other ways of generating income. And I think that that's going to lead to the shift in the subscription-based model 
where the sales of a specific game don't determine all of your income, right? It's bundled together with other products, so you have um, a bit more security there, as well as the sort of freemium battle pass uh, style model that we see very, you know, very popular in, in Fortnite and uh, Magic the Gathering Arena uses the same type yep, of thing. Yep, the Mastery Pass. Well, you have the Mastery Pass, exactly, as well as many other games, right? It's all over the place now. And the reason why is because it generates more money. And, and it's also the reason why we see businesses that release kind of the, the same game every year, right? A new Call of Duty, a new FIFA, a new Madden, new NBA, whatever, MLB. Like, and, and the reason why is because there's less risk, right? If you're going to dump $100 million into a game, you better, you better feel really confident that, that money is going to come back and be profitable. You don't just want to lose that much money. So the reason they release the same game every year is because they know it'll sell. Even with minor changes and improvements, people will still buy it. So I think that um, we're going to see more of that or more games that are games as a service, meaning they launch and then they have a long tail, right? So Fortnite is an example of that. They do the seasons. They have the battle passes. They're constantly releasing new content. They're constantly releasing new things as opposed to kind of a more traditional model 10, 15 years ago where a studio would release a game, it's out, it sells, it's done, right? They don't touch it again. They work on a new game and then they they ship that and then they work on a new game, right? We see a studio work on one game and then try and run with it for a long time, right? Like No Man's Sky, you mentioned earlier, is another example of that. Rather than dropping No Man's Sky and cutting their losses and trying to work on a new game, they stuck with it. And now several years later, it's turned out to be very profitable. So that's the direction that I see games and, and sort of the business going uh, is, you know, more freemium content and, and more subscription based content uh, and more kind of repeats, if you will. Now, the good news is that there's still room for creative big games that we do get to see. We just see them less frequently. Right. So you still have. The Last of Us, uh, God of War, mm-hmm. Horizon Zero Dawn, the new Spider-Man was was great. Like, there's still room for these types of huge, you know, AAA experiences that aren't just rehashed uh, versions of something earlier. You just see less of them, and so that's that's kind of my take from the AAA side. From the indie side, I have no idea. Um, indie game development is so difficult. And so hit or miss, I, I have no predictions for the indie game development. I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. Wow. I'm grateful for your opinions. Also, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Spider-Man game because I think it's a great representation of how games can be. It wasn't part of a bundle. I mean, well, it only came out on like the PS4, but that's it's, it still wasn't like part of a bundle. It just came out on its own, and we're just continuing game by game, a amazing series with great graphics and just stuff like that. I mean, yep. uh, also, do you play Magic? Because I I heard you talking about Magic. Oh wow! No, I do. Yeah, I uh, I spend a lot of time on on Magic Arena. I haven't played Paper Magic in quite some time. But but I do I do play on Arena mm-hmm. quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I play on Arena too. I was playing on Arena for like an hour this morning. So <laughs> nice. All right. So this will be our final question. Before you leave, is there anything you want to tell the audience that you haven't told us so far? Actually, it's going to be second last question. Sorry. I think the thing that I would I would really stress for people that are interested about games and working in the games industry is that. Every resource you need to make a game is available for you online for free, um, and there's every tutorial you can imagine. So if you're really serious about making a game and, and being in this industry, then make a game. You you don't need anyone's permission or, or any sort of special training. It's all out there for free, and, and you can make whatever you want. You can use the same tools that the AAA studios use. The Unreal Engine, completely free. Unity, completely free. There's free versions of all the major softwares. You have GIMP, which is a, a free version of Photoshop. You have Blender, is a free version of Maya. It's it's all out there. And so if you're actually serious about wanting to make games, then go do it. Go make games um, is, 
is what I would encourage people and, and whoever's listening to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I was planning on mentioning this earlier, but I forgot to. But there's this guy named Elka Gaming uh, on YouTube. He's awesome. But he's making this Avatar fan game. And he spent uh, days and, like, hours and hours on uh, this PS4 Dreams system, I think it is, or something like that. Where And he's just on his own with with a few other people. But, like, mostly on his own. He's created this, like, crazy game. And he has such a big backing and, and it's awesome to see that that he himself could just do this like from from like scratch. It was crazy, and, it ma- and I'm sure it made some people want to just try their best. I mean, you really don't have to throw that much money into it. You just you just got to try, you know. Exactly right. Every you can do almost everything out there for free. And kind of tying back into a point I made earlier, if you decide you want to try making a game, it doesn't have to be big. Right. It doesn't have to be this world spanning, you know, super elaborate, a bunch of mechanics thing. It it can be something that's very simple. Right. And I would challenge anyone that's really interested in making games, find something that's simple and actually finish it. That's going to be the hardest thing. Right. Is just find something and take it to completion because finishing it. The last 20 percent is going to take 80 percent of your time. I guarantee it. I get exactly what you said, because like going back to something we said earlier, Flappy Bird is just this this random little game. People just took like a bird and like pipes on each side and just randomized it. And then this bird just goes through and it blew up. Everyone at school knows Flappy Bird. Like if you said Flappy Bird, I'm sure everyone around you would know because it's a it's a crazy, interesting game that because it's not that much it's it's so small it's not it's crazy detailed but you still mm-hmm. but you still get um a lot of enjoyment out of it and it's also very well known i mean oh, yeah. when you when you consider how how interesting that was you don't know how long that could have taken them or how much funds it could have taken them but it did so much I, everyone around me knows it and i just think that's it's super interesting how how much effort they probably did put in they probably put in a lot of effort not saying they didn't but i'm also saying that it's it's not a crazy expensive multiple mechanics whole thing it's just a, a simple little no. game it's very straightforward it's easy to understand it's easy to you know start and end it's it's just a very it's a very simple game uh that did that was very successful because of its simplicity yeah absolutely so here's the actual final question if you could tell me anyone that you would want me to interview so anyone you know just anyone generally, mm-hmm. who would it be? So I have a very good friend of mine uh, who is a designer. He's a content designer at Squanch Games. I've worked with him since graduate school. He's, he's one of my closest friends. I would recommend reaching out to him. His name is Drew, and I'll, I'll send you his information. I'll introduce you to and, uh, and he's a great guy. He's very interesting. He's an interesting character, but he knows the stuff and he's, he's a lot of fun to talk to. Well, I like interesting, so <laughs> I'm very quirky myself. So no matter, no matter who he is or what he does, I mean, it's just great to, it's just great that you, uh, put me towards someone because, uh, I need guests. <laughs> yeah, of course. My pleasure. Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. I'm so glad you were able to discuss how production is so important to the creation of the game. I think you offered people listening an understanding of the different career opportunities in gaming and that gaming can be an industry for everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Gamer Story Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please share it with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for me, you can reach me directly at thegamestory.com. Thanks for listening.